welcome to episode six of PathPod. I'm Dr. Mike Arnold of Children's Hospital Colorado. Today we have a new segment, Beyond the Scope, where you'll hear our hosts talk to guests about their life beyond their careers. Our host today is Dr. Sarah Jang of Duke University. You can follow her on Twitter at S-A-R-A underscore J-I-A-N-G. She'll be speaking today with Dr. Lester Thompson, a head and neck pathologist with Southern California Permanente Medical Group. You can follow Dr. Thompson on Twitter at Head and Neck Path. And here's our host, Dr. Sarah Jang, to tell us a little bit about Beyond the Scope. Welcome, Sarah. Hi, thanks, Mike. So my idea with the segment Beyond the Scope is that Those of us in pathology often have really interesting hobbies and lives outside of pathology as well. And so this is an opportunity to hear from pathologists, not only about their passions and interests in pathology, but what makes them tick when they're not at work. So the name Beyond the Scope is a little bit of a play on words in that it literally is what we do when we are not sitting at our scope or at our desks doing work, but also things that are beyond the scope of what is usually included in a pathology career. So I think it'll be really great to hear from the personalities that make pathology the vibrant and interesting field that it is. That's awesome. I loved your interview with Dr. Lester Thompson. How did you come to get in touch with him? He actually reached out to us directly. So I had posted something on my Facebook account about the PathPod launch, and he reached out and said, hey, I'd love to be on the podcast. And I know Lester because he does head and neck and endocrine pathology like myself. I know that he always has great stories, always has a lot of enthusiasm, and has a ton of interesting hobbies outside pathology. So it was really great to be able to interview him for the show. Well, it came out great. So let's get to your interview with Dr. Thompson. All right. I'm excited to share it with you. and welcome to PathPod. Today we're doing our segment called Beyond the Scope, where we speak to pathologists about their interests and pursuits outside of pathology. I'm your host, Sarah Jang. You can follow me on Twitter at S-A-R-A underscore J-I-A-N-G. We're very lucky today to have Dr. Lester Thompson on the show. Dr. Thompson is a world-renowned head, neck, and endocrine pathologist who has written and lectured very extensively. You can follow Dr. Thompson on Twitter at head, A-N-D, neck, path, and at his website, lesterthompsonmd.com. Welcome, Dr. Thompson. Good afternoon. Thanks, Sarah. Good to see you. So excited to have you here on the show, and I'm really looking forward to learning what makes you tick uh, and what you do when you're not writing all those papers and books. <laughs> yeah, isn't that what everyone wants to know? <laughs> Pathologists <laughs> don't sleep. I think that's what they don't recognize about <laughs> us. We survive uh, in the basements with um, only food passed under the door. <laughs> oh, I know that is certainly not true of me. I have windows in my office and I absolutely love eating. It's one of my main hobbies. So I'm sure it is not true for you either. Okay, so let's talk about food for a second, because that's a good thing to start. You know, I'm a vegetarian, so this has always been a major problem for me. Whenever you go out, um, not so much today, but, you know, earlier on, it was always so difficult to get anything. And my mom was a super um, cook, and so she actually said, if you're going to be a vegetarian, and I, this is like fourth generation vegetarian, right? So we're talking about the grandparents and the great grandparents all the way through. So uh, she said, if you ever you, you want to survive this, you've got to um, do your own cooking. And so she really started to teach me how to cook. And I started cooking when I was, oh, goodness, like seven or eight. So truly, you know, not quite 
running around the kitchen in diapers, but nearly. And um, so that is actually one of my passions outside of medicine, you know, is the cooking. And so I actually, I have a recipe blog. There are about 750 recipes. And it's through Blogspot, actually. They do a fabulous job. And every time I get a new recipe that I really like and try it out, I do photos of it while I'm doing it. Then I test it out. Oh, you know, that was dreadful. Take it off the blog. I'm never <laughs> going to eat it again. Or it's fabulous. I need to make this and remember to put in such and such afterwards. So I actually have a great time cooking. So do you mind sharing the address for that website for your blog? No. So it is T2Recipes dot blogspot.com. It's a fun thing to, to do and I really enjoy it. But you know, my wife really is um, quite integral to all of the things um, that I enjoy. And I do think that having an amazing partner that shares your same interests. So she does not share pathology at all, right? <laughs> There's just no interest at all. She is <laughs> dreadful at pronouncing the name. So, you know, she'll come out and say squamous cell. And I'm like, no, 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 <laughs> oh, it's squamous cell. Oh. Um, so it is funny that she does not recognize any of the terminology or anything, but she's very involved. I mean, so in my view, she is the quintessential mascot for pathology. So she comes to all of the meetings with me, gets to know all of the people. She knows who they are, knows, and, and this is what's super. She knows the name of their spouse or significant other, whatever the category. She knows the name of the pets and the dogs and the travel and how many children and their ages and their birthdays and all this. And then they go into a fabulous database because she's a computer geek, right? <laughs> so wow. here is this fabulous database. And so... When I start calling someone and I think, oh, crap, I've forgotten the name of their baby. And then I look it up. Oh, look, there it is. <laughs> How's blah, blah, blah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. How wonderful. But you're giving yeah. away your secrets now to all our listeners of how you keep track of all these things. But they should all have the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> we should all be so lucky. We should all be so lucky. Actually, the, the uh, travel is, of course, one of the things I enjoy as well. The, the food doesn't really synchronize well with that because I must say when I go to foreign destinations and, you know, they have these fabulous insects rolled in something that is the delicacy of the day, not really for me. But, you know, whenever you think about a travel, there's just so much that you can gain from that. I mean, if you just think about, you know, expanding your horizons for one, uh, that's always something that I get out of it, kind of, you know, learning and getting a deeper perspective of what it is that other people have and do. It kind of brings back the idea of, you know, what do I have in my life that is, Something I take for granted and over in a different country is just completely unavailable, not there, something that they may not even have heard of. So that aspect is certainly there. But I will say one of the things is the challenge of travel. You know, now it's obviously kind of non-existent with what's going yeah. on currently, but it is always so difficult to kind of get where you want to go. And my wife and I are not, we're going to Paris to visit the Louvre. I mean, we are more okay, we're going to do a Aurora Borealis. We want to see it. It has to be from the furthest, most northern point you can get to in Finland. There's only one flight a week. You've got to go in on a dog sled. It's going to be in an igloo. There are only two other people that, you know, that's the type of thing we enjoy. And so, of course, that takes so much work and effort. So trying to coordinate all the flights and the travel and where you're going and all this. And needless to say, that can be very nerve-wracking. And so we always have our rule that we 
only one of us is allowed to flip out at a time, <laughs> which is good because, you know, if my wife has started to flip out about something, then I know, okay, I cannot, I've got to be calm. <laughs> and then I remain calm for the, whatever that duration is. And then if I'm flipping out, she'll be the calm one. So between the two of us, we usually, you know, are able to take it into consideration. But, you know, it's an adventure. It's an escape. You get to meet so many um, interesting people. I mean, we went on a safari in Africa in 1993. So, you know, a long time ago. And I still have Christmas cards and correspondence. And in fact, when I was in Australia last year for the Royal Society meeting, we actually were able to visit with them in their home. So this is something where you've maintained a friendship for, you know, 20 plus years, just from yeah. seeing them on a travel, you know, we were on a safari together for, for two and a half weeks. So um, it is interesting how that particular finding in travel is so meaningful. And of course, you know, there was a bit of a bucket list concept going on there, just so I don't, yeah, sure. you know, like completely mislead. But when we first met each other, we knew that we, you know, both enjoyed travel. And, you know, I am foreign. I was born in Zimbabwe and then raised in South Africa and then came over here to America. But when we first met and we knew that we both enjoyed travel, our goal was to visit 100 countries by the time we turned 50. So it was kind of a listen, you've got to work on this, you know, so every year <laughs> you need goal, to yeah. do five things. So when I would get an invitation as a speaking engagement and she would say, not a new country. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay, well, we've got to go anyway. Maybe we can hop from there to wherever it is that it's going to be. And so that was always a fun thing. And now I think we've been to 122, although, you know, we'll argue about oh it clearly. Well, because, you know, what is a country, right? I mean, what is your definition of a country? Do you have one? Hmm. Uh, you know, I've never really thought. Yeah, about I'm putting it. you on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's super interesting. So, for instance, Antarctica. Okay, Antarctica is actually not a, a country. It, it's it's a continent, right? But it isn't really. You can visit it. You can go and see it. But you know, then how do you count that? Because it isn't technically a country. So you know, when you look at each of these things and how they divide them out. Okay, I'll choose Easter Island as an example. You know, we went to Easter Island. To me, I visited another country, right? No, because it's owned by Chile. Even though it's 3,200 kilometers from Chile, it's owned by them. And they're the ones who, you know, have administrative control over it. But, you know, to travel for 3,000 kilometers and be in the middle of nowhere and it's not another country, I'm like, no, it's going to be another country. <laughs> <laughs> funny. And yeah, it is interesting. You know, certainly as pathologists, we, we have our lumpers and our splitters. So I guess... <laughs> You're, you're, you're a splitter and your wife is a lumper. But, you know, that's one of the things about PATH, though, that kind of synchronizes with that passion. So, so many times, if you think about international travel requests and where they want you to go and, you know, getting an invitation like you have had, the idea that I've been, you know, invited to so many of these different countries, it allows me to sort of share my passion pathology and do some education and so forth. But then also, there is the added component of, you know, I can now go and see another country and quite frequently the person that is doing the inviting will have, you know, a first-hand knowledge of the country. They'll say, listen, I, I think you should see these three places. Why don't we go there after the meeting is done? And so then you get an even better insight and take-home message from it. And so you really do learn so much more when you have someone that is so interested in what you're doing. Yeah, it's such so. a privilege. 
I mean, not only to to be able to visit these places as part of our jobs, to be able to travel and educate and speak, but then also to have kind of that entree into the country, which is that person who's from there, who knows the good restaurants that you're never going to find out of, yep. you know, the Michelin Guide, for instance. Uh, <laughs> and and yeah, it's it's really it's really wonderful to have that kind of passport, if you will, to, to understanding that country better. Yeah, it's it's very enjoyable. And, you know, one of the reasons why we enjoy travel as well is just from an overall sort of architectural and historic perspective. So we do thoroughly enjoy looking at, you know, the architecture, um, looking at some of the ancient buildings. I mean, you go to some place like Greece or you go to Turkey or going to Egypt or, you know, they have such an amazing wealth of material from so long ago. Actually, that's one of the things that triggered one of my other interests is um, with the uh, stained glass. You know, that's another one of my hobbies. So, you know, if you think about pathology in a way, it's a jigsaw puzzle, right? Everything kind of all fits together and the colors and shapes are there. And, you know, we have a bit of an artistic appearance and you're like, oh, that looks like a cat or this is a dog, or, you know, this is a fireworks or <laughs> whatever. Pareidolia. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you can ha- enjoy it. And um, so when we were looking at some of the, you know, older cathedrals, stained glass windows. And I always thought, you know, I, I need to create stained glass windows. I mean, it's something that's been around for decades. I think it started in, you know, 600 AD or whatever, where they started putting colors to windows in churches in, in Britain and Europe. And so my wife and I took a class on how to do stained glass. And we did this maybe, oh, four or five years into our marriage. And we both loved stained glass as a concept. But each of us had something that we just despised passionately <laughs> about doing the process. But it was a complete complementary version of what we were going to do. So she, she doesn't really like the creative side. You know, she doesn't want to sit there and choose gloss. She doesn't want to choose mm. the design because, you know, what if the design is not right or whatever else? So I draw out the design and then I pick all the gloss and I have to cut it. But then she puts it all together. It is really a lot of fun to create the windows. And so we have a space in our kitchen, actually, that is a rotating window. So we have a whole bunch of windows that we just keep putting in a different one based on either the season or the holiday or the time of year or, you know, whatever it is. And we've given a few away, but they take forever. I mean, talk about time because everything is done multiple times. So again, this is like pathology. How many times do you have the BCC and the tubular adenoma and the ECCs and all this? I mean, it, there is a repetitiveness to it, even though it's slightly unique each time. So here, you've got to choose the glass, but then think, well, if it's twisted this way, then the leaf is going to have the right flow. If I twist it this way, then the leaf has the veins running the wrong way. So this cannot uh-huh. work. You know, you, yeah. So th- there's a lot that goes into kind of you know designing the window, but then you've got to cut it, you've got to grind it down, you've got to draw it twice, you've got to put it onto paper. I mean, it's very, very methodical in that way. But I like the end result. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And like you say, a lot of analogies to pathology where we're so visual and you're working with trying to make things fit together, as it were, into a cohesive whole and tell a story of what a tumor is and how it explains the clinical presentation. Yeah, I mean, it is, uh, it's funny how it isn't so completely different in many respects. And yet, there are some things that do overlap. I mean, even if you think about, you know, cutting for a gross specimen, well, it isn't always so fabulous, right? I mean, but it does give you the idea of what it is that you need to do and where you need to take sections to confirm what it is that you're thinking. And the same thing, you know, you're drawing out on gloss and then you're cutting. So the cutting on the gloss is just as, you know, tedious and difficult and, 
you know, if you go the wrong way, you know, the whole piece shatters and oh, <laughs> have to yeah. start again. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, not very pleasant, but it is, it is quite funny how those things all do sort of match each other. And, you know, you think, okay, I've made several analogies to pathology, but you always think, you know, what is it that I would have done if I hadn't been a pathologist? You know, so that's always kind of in the back of your mind of, I really enjoy it. I do it well. I like to share about it. I like to do things related to yeah, um, yeah. pathology. But then one of my other passions, which I think you actually do know because you may have attended one of them, is workplace financial literacy. So this is trying to get people to understand about finance and money and what to do and how to save for retirement and what things not to fall into and all of that. So when I was in college, my degree is actually in business administration. So it has got nothing to do with the sciences. I mean, you had to have the chemistry and the biology and the other things in the background in order to meet the um, pre-med requirements. But it was always, you know what, if you think about it right now, right, economically, if you're talking about U.S., 20%, I think, of GDP is accounted for by um, the healthcare industry. So you're talking about one-fifth of the engine running this entire country is healthcare. So if you're going to be a physician and you know nothing about money, you don't know how to save it, all you do is you know how to get into debt. And then... We, we are actually quite good at earning as well. You know, I mean, right. there, there's certainly a commensurate compensation for what it is that we do. But then you look at that and you think, okay, how is it that still the people are in such desperate straits? And it's because the money flows in and it flows out. You know, no mm-hmm. one taught them budgeting. No yep. one taught them about investing. No one said, you know, what a logical investment is, what an illogical one is, why you shouldn't be doing mm-hmm. something. So all of those things are really very important to me. And so I started, obviously, with college and having that as a, a background. When I started my career, I actually started with the Navy. And so if you think about Navy medicine as a whole, as a pathologist, you're automatically an officer, whereas you're working with a whole bunch of people who are enlisted that are working with you to achieve whatever it is. So there's always this kind of interesting dynamic between the officer and enlisted. And I recognized very early on that there was no financial education at all for the enlisted people that I was working with. And I was at the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology. And so, you know, it's a kind of tri-service. So you have Navy, Army, and Air Force all combined at the same location. So they were often isolated from what would normally be, you know, their group of friends or people who would help them with whatever it is they needed to do. And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to give lectures on money and investing and on finance and just, you know, regular how to get yourself out of debt, what a credit score is, you know, just regular day-to-day operational things that they didn't otherwise have. And um, after I'd done that for about five years, I realized, wow, you know, this is amazing how you can see a now positive impact because, you know, the military moves so often and every three years it was, you know, a movement, but that meant there was always people coming and going. And I'd get, you know, calls back from people who are now moved to somewhere else and say, oh, I'm still part of the thrift savings plan and my account has just gone over $100,000. Thanks so much. Well, you know, so it really reinforced yeah. to me that you can have a massive impact on the people. So when I came out here to work for Kaiser, within a year, I actually started working with the uh, retirement plan and now I'm on the retirement committee. So I help other physicians get to retirement and try to uh, do good financial planning. So if I were not in medicine, I would be a financial planner. It's really interesting. And you bring up, you know, this very good point that, you know, there's so much of, we learn so much in medicine, but 
we don't learn a whole lot about a how to take care of ourselves as physicians or b how to take care of our financial security and so there's there's these big gaps in our medical education that you know certainly you're helping to fill and it's very important I, I think what is quite interesting is whenever I do these type of lectures and whether it's to residents or physicians or you know people joining the group as new partners I always ask how many of you had any sort of finance education in high school? And there's zero, you know, no one puts up their hand. How many in college? There may be one person. And then how many in medical school? It's always zero, right? I think there is a fundamental issue with medicine about, no, 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 we can never talk about money because, you know, money is like taboo. It's like sort of, you know, sex Mm -hmm. and drugs and rock and roll and all this, you know, oh, you're not supposed to talk about it. Mm -hmm. But when you think about, you know, someone who is in private practice as a pathologist and earning... $250,000, $350,000, $500,000. This is like a mini business. And you have all of the people who are working with you as part of the lab, as part of the support system, no matter what it is that they're doing in that particular role. So as a lab director or lab operator, you're again responsible for a large swath of monetary decisions that if you just don't have any education about, clearly you're going to make the wrong thing. And then that's, you know, a bad outcome. So um, I I think one of the things that the CAP is now doing is having resident education around money. And I think they've had three or four lectures, one per year over the last several years to the resident forum. And I think this is a fabulous opportunity to at least initially engage people and say, hey, think about the money sometime somewhere, but you you need to start now, at least recognizing it is a platform for further development. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and you know, we're, we're all thinking about money all the time, right? Just not necessarily intentionally thinking about how to manage it aside from, hey, here's a bill, let me pay it. Though I think that's really important work that you're doing along with the CAP to, to raise awareness of that. So what, what initially drew you to pathology? How did you get into this field? Did you always okay. did you always want to be a pathologist no. from a childhood? Okay, yeah, go. I'm going to give you the short answer, and that is I flunked out of orthopedic surgery. <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay, seriously. So I'm going to go back a little bit in time, though. So when I was in college, I worked as the secretary. So one of the skills I learned from my mother, in addition to the cooking, she was the legal secretary, and she taught me how to type. So when I was eight years old, I knew how to type touch typing. So I could type 110 words a minute. And, you know, this was without errors and what have you else. So I was very easily accommodating in any sort of job I went into, they would immediately, oh, you need to do the typing, you're good at it. So when I started college, I applied for several different jobs. And the chairman of education, her name was Elizabeth Ware, said, oh, you're fabulous. You can do all the curriculum for me. I can just give you this work and you're going to type it. This is awesome. But, you know, the money was not fabulous because I was in college. And so she recognized that I, you know, kind of wanted some additional pocket money or play money. So she said, why don't you clean my house? That would be fabulous. I hate doing it. (laughs) But if you come over and clean the house, I'll give you, you know, cash, which was going to be fabulous. So every Friday afternoon, I would go over there and spend three or four hours and clean her entire house because she did a lot of entertaining, as you can expect from anyone who's, you know, a chairman of a department. And several times though, when I went, her husband was at home sitting by a window in a sort of sitting area in their bedroom looking through a microscope. And I just thought, oh, that's really weird. I wonder what he's doing. And I was a bit, you know, not 
afraid, but you know, you don't want to bother someone while they're working. <laughs> but I knew I had to clean the bedroom. So um, I would say, okay, do you mind if I clean the bed? Oh, no, no, you can come in. Last year. You know, you should come and look through the microscope with me. And I'm like, oh. the wife is not paying me to do that. <laughs> but okay, why not? I'll look for a few minutes. So it turned out the guy was Douglas Ware, and he is actually the person who identified the organism for cat scratch disease, which at that oh. particular time was Aphipia felis, because Aphipia for AFIP, which is where he worked. So ironically, here he was looking at specimens at home because it was quiet and he didn't have all the rest of the things that go on because he was in charge of the infectious disease department at the AFIP. So that was my first exposure to it. And so they knew I was going to medical school. And when I applied to medical school, he and his wife actually said, we are going to assist you with your first year of medical school because we don't want you to start going in debt immediately. So he and his wife and the dean for the university, her name was Eddie Howard, actually both paid for my first year of medical school. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, can you imagine? This is just a yeah. fabulous thing and something that, you know, you pay forward and Clearly, that's why I do what I do now. But I uh, did all the stuff in medical school. I really liked surgery. You know, it seemed very dramatic. And, you know, you could save someone. And, you know, it was always very high intensity. But um, in my first year, so I was an orthopedic surgery resident. And in my first year, I have control problems. I'm sure that is very obvious to you. I cannot relinquish control. So... <laughs> Jero would have a patient in the ICU and I would say, you know, can you please take care of this patient and they need to have this x-ray and they need to have these tests before they go into surgery tomorrow morning and make sure they're NPO and blah, blah, blah. And then I would come back in at four o'clock in the morning and none of the things had been done. Oh. And I was like, I I've got to do it myself. So, you know, I would just never release something. And this was about eight months of basically working 24 seven. I just never oh. stopped and never gave up oh. and I could not release anyone and the chairman of the department, and he's like, Lester, orthopedic surgery is not for you. You need something where you can do it and be done, not having this constant uh, flow in the back of your mind. And so he said, have you thought about pathology, ER, or radiology? And I said, oh, I know a pathologist. They, they have a great life. He was at home every afternoon. <laughs> 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 which, of course, was my view at the time when I was in college. Right. And so he said, okay, well, where do you want to go? And I'll try and help you. And, of course, I was at Loma Linda at the time. That's where I did both my medical school and orthopedic surgery. And I said, well, you know, somewhere in the greater geographic area, obviously. And he said, okay, well, just apply and we'll see what happens. So ended up going to UCLA and starting then as a first year, but having already done, you know, at that point, it was a five-year residency with one clinical year at that point. And so the clinical year of orthopedic surgery counted, and so there I was. And just love pathology. Obviously, it was, here is the slide. Learn what you need to about the slide. <laughs> Write the diagnosis. Release! <laughs> and I didn't have to wait for anyone. So it was really a life-changing thing to not have to worry about. Were other people doing what I'd asked them to? It was just complete freedom for me. And so I suppose that's where all of the you know, writing and all of that sort of thing does too, because, you know, most of the writing all of us do, right, is at four o'clock in the morning or at seven o'clock in the evening. You know, you don't write mm -hmm. books and papers in the middle of the day. So that freedom that pathology allowed me to still be super busy, feel like I'm, you know, engaged, involved in patient care, but kind of on my own terms where I'm not 
feeling anxious. I mean, if I give a bad diagnosis to someone, there is an emotional pang because you're like, oh goodness, you know, this person is going to suffer. They're going to go through all of the chemo and the radiation and the, you know, surgery, whatever else they sure. need to at that sure. point. You know, I may make 15 or 18 cancer or malignant diagnoses per day. You and I may look at something and go, wow, this is a gorgeous stain. Look at the pattern. Look at the color. Look at the, you know, whatever. So we may have a secondary benefit in the background visually that offsets a little bit of the balance of, you know, what's going on emotionally while you think, oh, this is a dreadful diagnosis that I'm giving to someone at that particular point. So, right, right. Yeah, it's, um, yeah. I, thank goodness each of us finds our niche in medicine and an area to, you know, shine and enjoy and feel like what you're doing is best for that particular person. Um, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You know, if you didn't always want to be a pathologist, can you tell us a little bit about what you wanted to be when you grew up when you were a child? Ironically, um, I wanted to be a vet. So uh, mm. from the very earliest age, my mom said it was like four or five years of older uh, years of age, I would say that I wanted to be a vet. And my brother did as well. So, uh, both of us wanted to be vets. And that actually changed when I was about nine. So at that particular point, we had one of our dogs and the dog had developed a tumor, which, you know, I still don't know what the tumor was because, you know, at that point you didn't really do right. veterinary pathology, even though you can today. Yeah, um, yeah. So the dog was put down and I tried to understand from my mom, you know, well, what is the point of the vet then? If the vet is just taking the animal and putting it down, I don't understand what, how this was good. And why, well, you know, the whole explanation of you can't really cure the animal, you're not going to be able to do it, they can treat other things, this isn't one of them. You know, so it was a very enlightening opportunity. And when I spoke to some of the vets, and they explained that, you know, doing the euthanasia component or putting the animal down was not an inconsequential percent of what they did. And emotionally, I just thought, oh, goodness, you know, I love my animals. They are my people. These are my, I, I don't have children because I have cats. So I just, oh, no, no, I cannot do this. I would, you know, get so emotionally attached to it that I just didn't want to be involved in the euthanasia side. And so, you know, both I and my brother at that point thought, well, if all you have is, you know, the, the medical side there, why don't you move the medical side to humans and maybe euthanasia is not the choice there. So this is great. You can just do the curing. <laughs> and yes. so um, we both decided to be physicians. So <clears throat> this is what is really fascinating, just family dynamic wise about sacrifices that people make. So both my brother and I had decided this at about nine or so. So my brother was two years older than me. He was 11. And because we had both said we wanted to be vets from a fairly early age as well, this kind of carried a weight to it. So my parents were not just, oh, yeah, you're saying you want to be a doctor. That's great, honey. You keep doing that. They, they really genuinely understood that this was something that we were going to do. And the South African system at that point was very uh, strange in that there was a lottery component to it. You kind of all got to the application point and did everything that was required to get there. But then if you got into the medical school or not, it was purely based on luck, luck of the draw, luck of a lottery. So it's potential that you would be a fabulous candidate and just never get in. And so my dad said, if we move to America, you will be able to get into a medical school because there are more than 130 of them in South Africa. At that point, there were only three. So just, mm -hmm. you know, logically, you'll be able to get into mm -hmm. something. So my dad gave up his career 
in South Africa to move to America with my mom in order to be able to allow us to have the opportunity to go into medicine. So um, that to me was a tremendous personal sacrifice for both of them to say, let's leave all of that. And, you know, this is five generations back, right? My great, great grandparents were in Zimbabwe. So it's a truly, you know, this entire family was all in that location. And they still are. I have relatives in South Africa and Zimbabwe, but to move over here and allow us that opportunity and then let that kind of develop on its own. It's not like they ever forced us to, but my brother is an OBGYN and he works on the East Coast. His wife is actually a psychiatrist, so he married another physician as well. And we all went to medical school together at Loma Linda. So I guess there's some comfort in knowing that even though we both said, oh, I want to be a doctor when I grow up, that we actually did both actually pull through and <laughs> become yeah. the doctor yeah. and, you know, enjoy what we do and ultimately have it be a good experience. Well, you know, I think hearing, you know, your family story, that's such a quintessential kind of immigrant story is that yes. that's why, you know, so I'm an immigrant myself and I was born in China and my my parents moved to the U.S. when I was a small child to pursue that dream of being in the U.S. And, and for them, it was it was not because I had expressed any interest to be a, being a <laughs> physician. I think I was only about three when, when my family made that decision to move to the U.S. But I think that that's the crux of the immigrant story is you don't uproot your family from where you're entrenched in the culture. You know the language, you know the food, you know the people. It's where all your loved ones are. You don't move your family halfway across the world or, you know, cross borders uh, with, without a really good reason. It's a sacrifice. It is definitely. I think, I mean, the, the uh, benefit ratio to sacrifice is probably there. In other words, long term, I think they also thrived here in the United States and did well. And my father was able to transfer within his work such that he was able to continue in the same career path here in the United States. But it definitely is something where the sacrifice to get over or to do what it is initially, and it took, you know, a lot, it took three years to actually do all of the paperwork required and to get the necessary, you know, visas to come in and to do it legally and everything else, I mean, was a huge undertaking. And then, you know, I became a citizen exactly five years to the day of when I'd arrived in the US. So I definitely took advantage of that um, right away. But it is something that takes a lot of uh, effort for everyone involved. And it's always nice to see when long term there's a positive outcome from it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I definitely think that the choice to become a physician was a good one. And I, I, can't, ima- I can't imagine not having you in the pathology world. I can't imagine you as an orthopedic surgeon. So, so I'm glad that worked out for certainly <laughs> the head neck pathology community. We'd, we'd be missing a lot of papers and a lot of textbooks if you'd gone into ortho. There are a lot of good people who do work in the field. My goodness, you know, that is always one of my things is the mentorship aspect, you know, working with other people, trying to engage them. Uh, One of the programs that I work with here locally is students from high school will rotate through our medical center for a three-month period, and they work with someone. And so I happen to be one of the some ones. And with each of those people, I've always said, you know, I would like you to get a feel for what medicine is, but I also want you to develop skills on how to use Excel, develop skills on how to use PowerPoint, develop skills on what you need to do if you're going to do a research paper, become familiar with PubMed and how to sign into it and create your own 
lists of things and to save articles and to do all of these sorts of things. So that whole education aspect is really fun now because when I look back and see that they are now, you know, practicing physicians because they saw what it is and no one has actually chosen pathology, which is not a problem. It is fabulous that someone can see each discipline, see what it takes, learn from it, and then move forward. So when I think about the people in, you know, that I interact with within the academy or in work or whatever it is that you have, being able to share the learning that you do, you know, writing a paper is not a piece of cake or something that you just pick up naturally. <laughs> you know? I mean, it's a very disciplined approach and even something as ridiculous as a reference manager, you know, the number mm-hmm. of people yes. in my generation, and I'm using that somewhat loosely, um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, in my generation, it was, you know, you hand numbered each of the references. <laughs> yeah. And if someone told you to add a new one, you're like, what? Uh, you know, yes. So that was just dreadful. Whereas now, you know, with reference manager or EndNote or whatever program you use, you know, you can go, oh, put in a new one. That's great. Fine. Yeah. Yeah. How many more do you want to add? Let's put it in. But people have never even heard about that still nowadays. And so being able to share that education and make the process easier, you know, that's always the thing I'm about is I would rather have people stand on my shoulders than have them work out how to create a ladder. I mean, it just is so much easier if someone else can tell you, listen, this is the easiest way to do it. So one of the things I've noticed, speaking of publications, is that you have some really interesting and engaging dedication. So tell me about your approach to writing a book dedication. (laughs) Oh, goodness. You know, so when you think about it, you do sacrifice to write a book. I mean, right, this is what you're doing. You're, You're sacrificing to write it. And it's not only you, it's also your loved ones, because they don't see you. So they may see you, you know, they come into the office and they see you writing. Don't bother me now. I'm in the middle of writing. I'll come back later. And so there's a whole lot of things that they are not able to do because you're always working. And so, you know, I look at it and say to my family or, you know, to my wife, and you just think, oh goodness, this is just such a, a short, trite statement. And when I look at writing, I always think of this as my creative outlet. So, you know, I like to infuse it with some creativity. You know, I don't like it always just to be this very heavily stylized, oh, you must put in the objectives, you must put in the methods, they must be blah, blah. You know, there's a room for that, clearly. But, you know, you're also being creative in what you're doing, and especially in textbooks, other type of writing, where there's a language incorporated into it, isn't just bullet style. So if you've been so creative in doing the book, and now to my family. You know, that just seems like, listen, you know, you put in so much effort, be creative in that too. So, you know, I always try to like pick a theme or pick a topic and then expand on that. You know what, this just uh, reminded me of something. I'm going to put this as a reason behind it. So when I was in the Navy, you had to contribute bullet points to your fitness rep, which was the evaluation that you do and you have an annual evaluation. And if you don't have a good annual evaluation, you are not promoted. There is some very difficult component of you've got to write something that makes you look like you're amazing. It's difficult because this is not something that we're taught to sort of be positive about yourself or to write things that, you know, praise yourself. And so this is really, really difficult. But when I was at the AFIP, Bruce Winnig was my, was my boss. You know, he was kind of a big brother rather than just the boss. But you know, he was like, oh, Lester, you've got to, it's dreadful. You know, just write it and we'll all look it over and all of this. So he and Dennis Hefner would look at them with me. You know, after a couple of years, I thought, I'm going to do this as fun. And so I did exactly the same thing as the dedications. I created a theme. So one year, I took the word outstanding, which, you know, is kind of long. 
but I did the first letter of each of those as the bullet point for what it was and had each of them be a sentence. So if you were like standing a little bit at a distance and looked and went, wait, doesn't that spell O-U-T-S-D-A-N-D-I-N-G? Oh yeah, outstanding. <laughs> and you know, outstanding is the highest evaluation you can get. Of course. So it was kind of subliminal message. <laughs> I don't think anyone Very sneaky. ever, Very sneaky. Said, no, 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 I don't think anyone actually ever saw it, but that is actually what I do with the dedications because I always think, okay, I want an inside story. I want the one person who counts that I'm doing it for to really recognize what it is. And if everyone else doesn't get it, that's okay because it's kind of an inside secret for me to say, listen, these are all the people that have contributed to what I'm doing here. This is one person I really want to thank or dedicate this to in just a slight twist so that they really understand what I'm saying in the message. So, you know, I, oh goodness, it's been several years now. My wife's name is Pam. And of course we travel a lot. And so I just reverse the letters and have map. So in any way, that is what I chose. So, you know, that's the type of thing that I really enjoy trying to be a little bit more creative as an homage really to the people who have had to sacrifice with you as you've done whatever it is, you know, the books don't make themselves. And of course, no one is doing it for any, you know, financial reasons. <laughs> I think you end up paying them because you get, you get a royalty statement and it's negative and you're like, do I have to pay this? <laughs> if you're getting into academics for the, for the fame and fortune, you know, you might get famous, but I don't know if you're going to make your fortune. No, you know, but the book writing, if you think about it, is really an easy way of communicating a lot of information to people. You know, the individual research papers obviously are very useful. They provide the data from which the textbooks are drawn. But I do think that, you know, the textbook idea of creating a single view, a single collection, kind of curated, uh, you know, anyone can do a Google or a whatever search now. And, you know, you just get 2 million hits and you're overwhelmed and you're like, I have no idea which of these things is meaningful or important. And so I think that's where the, the textbook idea is able to kind of aggregate that information into taking the wheat and the chaff and kind of throwing out the chaff and saying, you know what, this is what the kernel of information that you really need, kind of an actionable item to help you with your diagnosis right there in real time. Absolutely. It's the curation aspect, I think, that's so important. When you you read a good textbook, you're learning from the experience of whoever's writing it, right? So it's not just, oh, here's some articles, here's the who, go (laughs) forth and go forth and do whatever you will with it, right? Yeah, it's funny hearing you say the the curation, because I thought, oh, goodness, you know, one of my other things that I just love doing is the art museums. And if you think about curation, I mean, that is clearly what someone has done. Uh, You know, you look at major museum collections, and invariably, there's always someone that kind of started it or organized it or did the initial curation or a special show that they're putting on right at that particular point has been the brainchild of someone. And, you know, this is what they want to achieve and see done. So I've always enjoyed looking at the art in museums because it gives you, you know, I enjoy the art itself, but also, you know, why is it that this person has put together these 22 paintings? I mean, what do they have? What's the arc of development? What's the storyline? How are they all interconnected? And then to find out that, you know, so-and-so actually was the first influence of this person. And now this painting is done as a benefit back to that. You know, it's just fascinating to see how they all intersect with one another. 
and you know it's also pretty to see so <laughs> <laughs> well it's about it's about telling the story right because we as humans we respond to stories we respond to someone telling us a story and that's what puts information into a format that we can digest as humans yes definitely and you know i think people don't recognize the amount of influence that you can have on individual patients as if you don't share with them. And too often, pathologists are viewed as in the lab, separate from the patient, not really involved. We do have an amazing influence on what's going on in, in our discipline and in our chosen profession of medicine. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's why we all do it, right? Because we might like looking at slides and, you know, looking at the pretty pictures and we like our colleagues, right? At the end of the day, it really is about being able to get the right care for patients and take care of patients. And I think all of us in pathology, even if we're not working directly with patients, always have that in our forefront as we're making our diagnoses. So oh, yes, definitely. Thank you very much, Dr. Thompson, for spending some time with us today on the show, for telling us your story. It's been an absolute pleasure. To hear more from Dr. Thompson, you can follow him on Twitter at head and A-N-D, neck path, and at his website, lesterthompsonnd.com. Thanks very much for listening, and please remember to subscribe to PathPod on Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or whatever your favorite podcast app is. Thanks a lot. Support for the free PathPod podcast comes from listeners who like it and share it with their friends. So go ahead, send someone the link. And be sure to subscribe to PathPod wherever you download your podcasts. PathPod is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not medical advice. As always on the podcast, any views expressed are solely those of the person speaking and do not necessarily represent their employers, their affiliated institutions, affiliated professional organizations, other speakers on the program, their friends, their families, their pets, or anyone involved in the production and distribution of this podcast. Thanks for listening to PathPod.